Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to our study in uh, 1 Peter. Uh, we are making our way through the book of 1 Peter, and we are now in chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And of course, our title is Christian Employment. Let's go ahead first and read our verses. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, if you're a parent uh, of a child old enough to talk uh, or a grandparent of, of, of toddlers or children or whatever the case may be, I'm sure we've all heard this come out of our children's mouth at, at some point. That isn't fair. And you dutifully responded, as we all do, life isn't fair. But if you really think about it, I doubt very seriously that you ever sat down and literally explain the concept of fairness uh, to your children. It's almost like we are born with this innate sense of fairness down deep inside of us, and, and that causes us to fight for our rights when, it, when we feel like we've been treated uh, unfairly. And if we're honest, we carry that sense of fairness with us out of our childhood and right into adulthood. And even though we say that, even though we know that life isn't fair, the fact is we're still prone to retaliate. We're still prone to fight back when we feel that our rights have been violated or we've been treated unfairly. Now, this is exacerbated by the fact that as Americans, this this trait is highly valued and promoted in our culture. We know as Americans, we, we hear it all the time, we have rights. We fight for what is ours. And so we've got this innate sense of fairness and justice that's just inside of us, and then it's exacerbated by the culture that we live in here in America. Now, for whatever reason, it seems to me that a lot more people in this country, and I include Christians in this, they're just angry. They're, they're bitter. They're, they're, they're critical these days. And if you begin to talk to someone about that and you, you point that out, they'll very quickly justify that anger or they'll justify that criticism. And they'll, they, maybe they'll tell you about how badly they've been treated. And let me say this, in many cases, that's valid. They have been treated badly. They have been treated unjustly. After all, we just said it, didn't we? Life isn't fair. The question is, though, how do we respond to unfairness? Do we respond as a, 
as an American citizen and, and fight for our rights? Do we, do we do whatever it takes to make sure that we're vindicated, that we come out on top? Or do we respond differently? Do we respond as a, as a heavenly citizen who, who lives under the authority of a different king? Do we respond as, as pilgrims who are only passing through? You see, this is the question that Peter is addressing in today's passage. Now, I'm going to tell you right up front that you're probably not going to like his answer. And, and, I, and I kind of know that because, to be honest, I don't like his answer. There's just something inside of us that's not going to like what Peter has to say. Now, as we begin, I want to get a little bit of context. I want to make sure first that we understand exactly what Peter is, is doing. Now, I have spent the last several weeks in 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, I've been developing several lessons. I've been studying it. I've been thinking a lot about it. And I can tell you that I have come away with one overwhelming impression. And that is, it makes a difference to be a Christian. You see, so many people in this life see Christianity as an add-on. They see it as a belief system that you just add on to whatever your existing life is. I, I said in one of my lessons a few months ago that many people see Christianity as a, um, or salvation as an insurance policy. Um, I'm, I'm going to need it one day when I die, but it doesn't really make a lot of difference in my life today. You see, so many people make a profession of faith in Christ and then if we're honest, they walk out the door and, and we see very little change, if any, in their daily life. Their work life stays pretty much the same. Their marriage is pretty much the same. Their leisure activity, how they, they, they spend their time that's their own, how do they spend that stays pretty much the same. Their money, their finances, what they spend their money on, how they handle their money, pretty much the same. Now let me tell you, that may well be a form of Christianity, but it's not the one I find in the Bible. You see, when I open the Bible, and I open the Bible and I look at books like 1 Peter chapter 2, the Christianity that I see there, real Christianity, is a radically different lifestyle. You see, real Christianity, above all else, makes a difference in your life. It makes a difference in, in your money, in your marriage, in your leisure, in your politics, in your, in your work. We say it all the time in this church, true salvation equals a changed life. Real Christianity has to make a radical difference in your lifestyle. Now, why must this be? And I underline the word must. Why must this be? Well, Let's back up a little bit in 1 Peter chapter 2. Go back to verse 9. I want you to watch what he says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here you go. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In verse 12, Peter says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the unbelievers honorable 
So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me tell you, this is the goal of the Christian life. This is the purpose of the Christian life. You are to live in a way, such a way that shows God. In other words, you are to live a life that puts Him on display for people to see. We don't just proclaim the excellencies of Him with our words. We proclaim the excellencies of Him with how we live. So you see, a Christianity that makes no visible difference in your life, how can that show God? See, that cannot be real Christianity. That can be religion, but it cannot be real Christianity. Real Christianity makes a radical difference in a person's lifestyle. And see, I think this is what Peter wants us to see today. See, after telling us our purpose in verses 9 and 12, Peter goes on to give us three real-world examples of what real Christianity looks like and in, in, by the way, in a hostile world that he lived in. And all three of these examples are based on the same exact thing, submission to those in authority over us. Last week, we looked in, in verses 13 to 17 at Christian citizenship, how a Christian is to, to submit to the government or to the state or to our leaders. Today, we're looking at verses 18 through 23. We're looking at Christian employment, how we are to submit to our masters, to our employers, to our bosses, to those in authority over us at the workplace. And in two weeks, he'll look at the third one, which is Christian marriage, a wife submitting to her husband. You see, in other words, being a Christian should make a difference. It should make a difference in our politics. It should make a difference in our workplace and it should make a difference in our marriage. Now, today, Peter takes up the issue of the workplace. What if you are a servant, and you've got an unbelieving master, or an unbelieving boss, or, or an, even an abusive employer? What does real Christianity look like in that particular situation? Well, I'm going to just very quickly summarize what Peter tells us. In verse 18, he says, Christian servants are respectfully submissive. In verse 19, he says, Christian servants bear up under sorrows when they suffer unjustly. Verse 20, Christian servants do good and they bear that suffering patiently. And in verse 23, he said, Christian servants, they don't return evil for evil. When reviled or slandered, they don't revile or slander back or, or threaten. They don't do any of those things. You see, if you are a Christian this morning, God has called you to endure unjust suffering. And you are to endure it without bitterness, without revenge, without a desire to hurt someone back. Now, let's stop right here and be very honest. Our immediate reaction to verses like this is to, is to think about ourselves. Immediately, our minds just go to, to justify the reasons we don't do or won't do what Scripture commands us to do. I said last week, we, our minds almost immediately run to the, yeah, but, but what if? Yeah, but what if this situation? Or what if that? We look at all these different scenarios. 
But let me tell you, there are much bigger questions to be addressed here uh, this morning. If God is calling us to this radical lifestyle, if God is, is calling us to not react the way that everybody else reacts in these situations, see, the question is, how is this declaring the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His light? How is this a kind of life that will cause people to glorify God on the day of visitation? Now, here's the first part of the answer. You see, when you have a heart that doesn't retaliate, doesn't look for revenge, doesn't fight for its own rights, this type of heart and this type of behavior and this type of attitude and this type of demeanor are utterly contrary to our fallen human nature. You see, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know if you're listening on live stream. I don't know if you're listening on the podcast. But I can almost guess that right now, even as I'm talking about these verses, that strong feelings of resistance are already rising up inside of you when you hear words like meekness and submission and compliance. You, it, it, just, it just rises up inside of us. You see, by nature, we hate, absolutely hate, to give the impression of weakness. We, we hate it when somebody takes advantage of us. We, we hate it when somebody gossips about us or slanders us or, or makes false accusations against us. We hate it when rude, arrogant, abusive people seem to get the last word or have the last say. You see, there's just something deep within us that recoils against that. And it pushes us toward revenge. It pushes us toward retaliation. You see, that something that's deep within us, it's what the Bible refers to as our flesh. It's that fallen nature. And what Peter is calling for here, what he's commanding here, is a behavior that is utterly contrary to our flesh. Now, here's the question. What does this have to do with putting God on display? What, what does this have to do with declaring the excellencies of Him? You see, for those that can triumph over their flesh, that can triumph over that fallen nature and live at this amazing level, it is strong evidence that something more than nature, something super nature or above nature is at work in their lives. And you see, that is exactly what Peter is going to tell us today in these verses. He's going to tell us five times that this kind of life, this radical type of Christianity, it, which is so contrary to, to our flesh, so contrary to fallen human nature, is owing to one thing and one thing only, and that is our connection to God. You see, Peter's talking about a group of people where Christianity has made a radical difference in their life. They've got, they've got different values. They've got a different worldview. They've got different priorities, a different focus. In other words, they are a peculiar people. So this morning, I want to look at five ways that this lifestyle is connected to God. Number one, it is a lifestyle that is mindful of God. Look at uh, verse 19. 
For this is a gracious thing, Peter says, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now this goes to the very reason that Christians do what they do. You see, we don't endure sorrow and unjust suffering because we're afraid of men. We don't, we don't do it because we've got a meek personality or we don't, we don't do it out of weakness. And in reality, to be honest, those are irrelevant. We do it, we bear it because we are mindful of God. That is, we take God into account. Or another way to put it, we take God as seriously as we take the offense against us. I want you to think about that for a second. You know, sometimes when somebody offends us, when somebody does something against us, that thing grows so large and God gets so small. And, and we don't think about God and we're just thinking about this thing that, that, that has happened to us. But you see, Peter is talking about a Christianity, a radical mindset, where we take God just as seriously as we take the offense. That God gets bigger and as He gets bigger, the offense gets smaller. It is a lifestyle, number two, that is favored by God. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious or a grace thing in the sight of God. Let me tell you, God absolutely delights in a behavior that reflects utter reliance on His grace. He delights in people that are trusting His Word, trusting His ways, instead of always reverting back to their fallen human nature. You see, when a Christian, mindful of God, looks, for God, looks to God for the grace to bear that offense, God sees that as a tribute to His grace. God is shown in that. God is displayed in that. And when we display God, Man, let me tell you, God is well pleased. Number three, this is a lifestyle that is called by God. Verses 20 and 21. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. Do you see what that says? You were called to be hurt for doing right. You were called to bear it without bitterness or revenge. Now, let's, let's, let's slow down here and make sure that we understand what Peter is saying. Suffering unjustly in this world is not a coincidence for Christians. It's a calling. You see, if you are a Christian this morning, God has called you to this, to endure unjust suffering without bitterness or revenge or the desire to hurt back. We hear people say often, I was called to preach. Well, let me tell you, you've been called to suffer unjustly. It is a vocation, if you will. It is a calling. And let me tell you, it is a high calling because it puts Him, our King, on display. Now, let me answer a question here very quickly. Does God will the unjust suffering of His people? The answer to that, absolutely yes. Peter's already referred to it here in verse 21. He says, you were called to this. But if you doubt, that's what Peter means in this one verse. He says the exact same thing, even more explicitly in other places. For example, later in chapter 3, verse 17, 
We'll read this. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 1 Peter 4.19, even more explicit. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, God wills that we suffer unjustly because he knows the best way for us to put him on display. Listen, sometimes God's will will be that we escape offense or we escape that suffering. And if that's his will, that's great. But I can tell you more often than not, God will will us to suffer unjustly because he knows that as we bear under that, as we, as we rely on his grace, that puts him on display even in a more and better way. Number four, this lifestyle is a lifestyle where Christ has set the example. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called, and once again, what he's talking about is you've been called to be hurt for doing right and to bear it without bitterness and revenge. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, this is the way Jesus suffered. The same way that, that, that Peter is calling us to suffer is the exact same way that Jesus suffered. He hadn't done anything wrong. He hadn't committed any sin. His, his suffering was completely and totally unjust, yet he did not retaliate or fight for his rights. And Peter says he did that for you. He did that for me. And you see, when we follow in his steps, we are putting him on display. Now, two things here I want to point out that this verse tells us. First, it says Christ suffered for you. Now, let me just remind you, and next week we're going to have a, a, a lesson. We're going to kind of stop and do a lesson on the meaning of the cross. But Peter tells us something here. When Christ suffered, he was standing in your place. He was bearing your sins, your condemnation, your judgment that you deserve, that I deserved, became his. He took it on his shoulders and he took it away from us. Now, why do I point that out? I want you to understand that the sufferings of a Christian are never, never judgment for sin. The sufferings of a Christian are never divine condemnation for sin. Galatians 3.13 Paul says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So when we suffer unjustly, it's not because he's somehow uh, pouring judgment on us for our sin or our wrongdoing. No, no, it's not that at all. It's a discipline for holiness. See, that is why our sufferings come just as often from doing what's right as from doing what's wrong because it's not has nothing to do with sin necessarily it is a divine calling to put Jesus Christ on display in our lives the second thing that verse tells us it says he left us an example you see when Christ suffered he gave us an example of how we were to suffer let's read verse 22 
It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You see, the very point of Peter telling us that is he wants you to see that Jesus was doing what was right. He didn't sin. He, there was no deception in his mouth. See, he didn't deserve what he got. Yet, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. See, this is our calling, Peter says, not to hurt back, not to plan to hurt back, not to seethe with bitterness because you're not allowed to hurt back. Now, let me tell you something, guys. If you, if you don't realize this, I'm sure you do, but this isn't easy. This isn't just a simple command or a simple rule to keep. Let me tell you, this is a miracle to be experienced. This is, a, this is a grace to be received. You cannot do this. I cannot do this on my own. I can't just make a decision. Oh, I'm not going to revile back. I'm not going to have bitterness. You can't just make a decision and do it. You need God to do it in you. It needs to be an absolute miracle in your life. So how do we do that? How do we experience this miracle? How do we receive this grace? Well, he's already told us, Peter has, the miracle happens when we are mindful of God and we bring Him into the situation. It comes when we take God as seriously as we take the offense against us. But let's even be a little more specific. So let's say something happens to us, something unjust. We don't deserve it. We didn't do anything to, to merit this kind of a treatment. But yet somebody does something to us. Peter says you need to be mindful of God. Okay, we need to think about God, but what are we to think about when we think about God? What are we to believe about Him? Well, see, this leads right into our fifth point. See, this is a lifestyle that trusts in God. How, how do we experience this miracle? Well, Peter tells us in verse 23, looking at the example of Jesus. When He was reviled, He didn't revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten so what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now let me tell you, this last one is the most important because this is the key to living this lifestyle. This is the key to doing what Scripture commands us to do. When you endure unjust suffering, and I want you, I want to please understand this. When we endure unjust suffering without fighting back, without fighting for our rights, without trying to vindicate ourselves, you are not saying justice doesn't matter. That, that powerful cry of a child's heart for fairness, that powerful cry that lives in our hearts as adults for justice, they're not wrong. God put them there. They are absolutely good things but you have to decide where that justice is going to come from. That's the key. See, the Christian choice, the example set by Jesus, is to, to defer to God. God is the final judge. God is the one who will settle our accounts justly. You see, my abuser will not have the last say. My God will have the last say. That's why I don't need to retaliate. I just hand it all over to Him. So I want you to get this this morning. My compliance, 
my submission is not an indifference to justice or an indifference to fairness. It's just a way of saying that the safest place for retaliatory justice is in God's hands, not mine. Now, real quickly, where does this justice for abusers come from? And I want to make sure I point this out because I think this is important. There are two answers to this question. First, we all know that justice is in God at the last day. There is coming a day, a final day, a, a great white throne judgment where God is going to settle all accounts and He's going to balance the books. Trust me, nobody will get away with anything. Nobody will get away with... We, we seem to worry to death sometimes about somebody getting away with something. Trust me, there's coming a day where nobody will get away with anything. But here's something else. I want you to also understand that God has given a measure of His authority to the government to expense justice now. We saw that last week, didn't we, in 1 Peter 2.14, where He talks about governors and emperors sent by Him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. See, there are, let me tell you, if somebody does something to you and they have broken the law, then the state has every right to punish them for doing that. Now listen, there are places in the Bible, and I don't want to go too far into this, where Peter tells us not to go to law against one another. And I think if we have a, a financial dispute or something as Christians, we should settle that amongst ourselves. Uh, we can use a mediator within the church. We don't have to go to court and do all that. But let me tell you, if there's some type of, of sexual abuse or something like that occurring, then the government has every right to expense justice now. In fact, that is why God has given us government to do exactly that, to keep law and order as we saw last night. But let me tell you, whether that justice is expensed out today through the government or whether that justice uh, has to be delayed until that final day, Neither one of those nullifies the calling of the Christian servant. Whether we live under a dictatorship or a democracy, we are to endure unjust suffering patiently. So God's glory is going to shine. Sometimes it shines through the dispensing of justice through the state, but it always shines much more brightly when His people patiently endure that suffering, mindful of, of God. I want to have a few final thoughts here if I, if I can. And I want you to please let this sink in. These verses tell us as clear as anything in the world, when you do right, you will still suffer. When you do right, you will still be criticized and slandered. When you do right, things won't necessarily get any better. When you do right, people won't even notice and there will be no appreciation. See, the question is, do you believe? Do you really believe that God sees every wrong done to you? Do you believe that He knows every hurt, that He assesses everything with, with perfect accuracy? Do you believe that He's impeccably righteous, that He doesn't take any bribes, that He'll make all wrongs right? Do you believe He will settle it all with perfect justice? Do you really believe that nobody will get away with anything? 
If you believe this, if you really believe it, if God is that real to you, then can I tell you, hand it over to Him. And nobody in the world may understand how you have peace. Nobody in the world may understand where your, your joy and your freedom is coming from, but you know, you know the answer is God. And one day, on the day of visitation, they're going to know the same thing. You see, when we suffer unjustly with patient faith in God, we are showing that we put God first above the comfort and ease of this world. We, we show that we depend on His help, not necessarily the help of the world. We show that His justice is more important to us than the world's justice. And more importantly, we show that we are living the eternal life, not buying into the world's mantra that you've only got one life to live. How many of us will make that choice? How many of us will choose to live in the liberating knowledge that this is our calling, this is our vocation to be misunderstood, to be criticized, to be ignored, to be hurt for what is doing right? And, and I use the word liberating because it is liberating. Because living a life where you're always trying to vindicate yourself, let me tell you guys, that's exhausting. That's exhausting. You can never set everything right. It's like a, a cat chasing its tail. You just, you're never going to completely vindicate yourself. It's just an exhausting lifestyle. Can we just do what God says? Can we just do what Scripture calls us to do? Turn it all over to Him. And let him handle it. And remember, Peter will say in 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while. You see, nothing lasts forever. It's only for a little while. And after you've suffered for that short time, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for your marvelous word. And God, sometimes there are scriptures in the Bible that, to be honest, I wish weren't there. But they are there, and they're calling me to be different. They're calling me to a different lifestyle. Not only different from the world, but different from this fallen nature, this flesh that just seems to make me do things sometimes that I don't want to do. God, help me to be the man of 1 Peter chapter 2. Help me to be that man. Help me to, to do what you say, to choose your grace and your will and your ways and your word over things that are just, just inside of me. God, help me to be that kind of man. Help us to be that kind of people. And God, we know when we do that that you will get the glory. Your excellencies will be proclaimed. And God, that, as, as your people, that's what we want more than anything else in this world. And we give you the praise and the glory, and we thank you in your Son's name. Amen.